So hello and welcome to the final Fizzy Sherbet episode of this first season. We are listening today to Scientific by Fernanda Rocha and this season we've listened to plays from Denmark, the UK and the US and now excitingly for the first time we are moving to Brazil because Fernanda lives in Sao Paulo, Brazil and uh, with me today is Sandra Teresa Buch. Hi Sandra. Hello. Hi Lily. Sandra has directed this wonderful play. So I was kind of really intrigued, Sandra, what drew you to the play? I know what drew us to the play, but what drew you, what, what made you want to direct it? Well, it, it was just like a stunning read the first time I read it. And it also kept being very interesting. A lot of questions came up to me, but the world of it is just amazing. This play takes us to some probably near future or possible past We are in um, somewhere Nordic archipelago area and we meet this scientific or this science woman. She's actually an explorer. And and then it just starts her talking about one of her expeditions where she actually uh, stumbles across a huge giant species or yeah corpse. And then she enters it. And I thought, wow, this is just a really good stuff, especially for audio drama, you know, who wouldn't like to explore a huge body from inside (laughs) and who wouldn't take a listener on this journey yeah so that was really sort of I really really want to do this play it's amazing yeah yeah definitely and with the sound design I uh, noticed that uh, the lovely Julian Starr who's designing this audio play was working with a lot of fruit foley which I thought was quite interesting (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) tell us a bit about your wonderful sound design yeah, yeah. The wonderful sound design is that, yeah, it's Julian who did it. And we were very keen on, yeah, taking the listener into this body. And also Fernanda Rocha, uh, who wrote the play, has made sure that it's very sensual inside this body when we're taking into it. And of course, we had to make that come alive audio-wise as well. So yeah, a lot of fruit, but actually you can hear it. It's fruit. It's just super slimy and, and sensual and maybe a bit sexual as well. But that's not the purpose. That's just happening, really, when we work on it. And yes, he, he just used a lot of fruit. Uh, we also discussed whether anything should really break, like, and then that would be a carrot. But it's only like tissue that's been broken in this piece. So we don't have any bones. So it's not, we haven't taken it that far. But it has been really, really fun working with creating the world of being inside, uh, almost dead, almost still alive body, warm and damp, as it also says in the text. Yeah, well, it sounds a very challenging thing to direct and to make, to be honest, as a sound designer director, but a great challenge, as as, uh, the listeners might know already, that I'm a massive fan of big challenges for directors. It's always fun. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Scientist crawls into the body of a beast. Very, very interesting. We will be listening to this in a second. And who plays the scientist? Well, yes, that's a a Danish actress, Danish actress Sarah Bobber. She's a brilliant actor. She got nominated for various um, Danish awards, but she's also in The Bridge, the Danish TV series. A couple of years ago, I think that went worldwide. Latest also uh, Equinox, a Netflix series. And yeah, and she's been also playing um, in The Seagull uh, here 
a Danish version, but directed by Katie Mitchell. Yeah, and she's just amazing. Her approach to the character was just very clear. Uh, and as we we're talking about the character, I said, wouldn't she be a little bit afraid when she sort of approaches this giant in the snow? And she said, no, she's not afraid. She's not afraid one minute. <laughs> and that was really what, what the show needed. This sort of fearless, super curious female explorer that doesn't know the limits at all. And it's also the amazing how she's sort of being thrown out of the beast again, but you really want to enter it again if she can. But unfortunately, yeah, it sort of closes and she cannot enter again, even though she really wants. Yeah, so she's doing an amazing job with this character. Yeah, we meet her, the scientist, in a lecture hall, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's that's where uh, this piece takes place in a lecture hall. But then we are taken back uh, to to the actual event in the background. Uh, but we are with her in the lecture hall all the way through where she describes this finding of the corpse, the giant corpse. I wouldn't say it's a beast, though, because okay. it, it can be. It's a very beautiful, amazing, big, greenish corpse. And she enters it to explore it, but then something happens. But she's still alive to tell the story in the auditorium, as we discover at the end also. I don't want any any yeah, plot spoilers here. <laughs> and so, for, uh, yeah, for Fizzy Sherbert, we've had abstract plays and naturalistic plays. And we've had, you know, plays set in the sea and plays set underwater from the perspective of a jellyfish last season but I don't think we've had one that's been actually in sort of placed firmly in the genre of science fiction so I'm mm. very interested to see what you do with this and very yeah 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 definitely I, it's like science fiction steampunk because it could be in the past as well mm -hmm. happening this it could also be in the future and it's still sort of lo-fi. It's not like with a lot of laser guns or anything. <laughs> She's just got her simple equipment at some digging accessories, as you say, and a measure instrument and a sharp instrument. So it's, it's very hands-on explorer, but she's an amazing character. She's like, yeah, fearless, curious, but she's also a hunter. And I think also it's her character that sort of drew me to, to the piece because she's a mystery to me. Like, why does she do this? Why can't she stop? And yeah, she's just, just a really, there, there's still a lot of questions around her character. And I think Sarah Bobert also thought that was really interesting working with. Um, what is her secret? She's definitely got a secret underneath it all. Fantastic. Uh, well, with that, I think we should probably let the listeners have a listen into the wonderful world of Scientific by Fernanda Rocha. Here we go. Yeah.
<clears throat> 12 meters tall, 10 meters between the tip of one finger and the other when I measured it with open arms. It was impossible to weigh it. I had little equipment, as I said. The archipelago is a maze and I was completely alone. I had only a few digging accessories, my thermos full of tea, a measuring instrument, a sharp instrument, and my trailer's key. It looked like a man, but bigger, green as a lizard. Three meters and 32 centimeters. That was its skull circumference, which was pressing the snow like a pillow. It didn't have any hair. It had this beautiful head. An extraordinary head, if I may say so. Eyes, mouth, nose, ears, every part so proportional, so shapely. It had a golden symmetry, a Greek symmetry, an uncomfortable, gigantic, perfect head. He had died not long ago, maybe minutes, maybe seconds. Its mouth was slightly open. Its lips were bluish because of the cold. So I kissed him. Its mouth opened so easily that my nose and my chin slipped into the body. I pushed it forcefully and put my whole head into this damp, dark space. I'm a cautious researcher, you know. I'm careful, but it's very difficult not to get involved with a research object, especially when it is such an extraordinary object. So I pushed a little harder and I realized I had torn something. Perhaps a piece of cheek or it's gone. I had already tucked my shoulders in when I reached out one of my arms and touched a rubber texture with which I assumed to be the epiglottis. It made a weird sound. I understood that it was my fist breaking the epiglottis, breaking it like a hymen. I touched the treasure wings, sticky because of the glutes and, well, a funny curious thing is that, you know, a detail. But I felt with my belly and my nipples the roughness of its tongue. This huge and wet and a little bit hot tongue. I felt it on the blouse and the vest full of pockets. I was soaked in drool. My hair was full of a greenish mucosa and my hips were no longer outside of its body. I was really riding its tongue. That still and moist and soft tongue. It was like a, a cushion with a delicious texture, a specific texture. I locked myself in the tongue so I wouldn't slip inside completely. My boots hit its teeth and I touched something gluey with my fingertips. I think I was in the pit of the stomach. I stretched a little and I ripped another tissue. This time it was a spongy and gummy one. Maybe it wasn't the stomach. Maybe it was the lung. Who knows, I thought. But I went deeper. And 
deeper. He sighed. I think it was because I dug a fingernail into a firm, fibrous, extensive muscle that I supposed to be the heart. I think it was a reflex because the tongue twitched in strong, intense spasms. I pressed the tongue harder between my legs and I pierced that fibrous muscles with two fingers. I pushed my finger deeper and the tongue shook so hard that I, wow, I had to keep holding on tightly not to be swallowed. I had to. I had to squeeze it with violence riding like that. I had to. I think I told the gigantic fibrous muscles, the enormous heart, as I had done to all the other tissues I told to get there. Then he vomited me. I fell in the cold snow. There were pieces of flesh between my fingers. The mouth closed even with the large tear caused by the insertion of my body inside that other body. All right, okay. I was moved by the scientific investigative curiosity and sometimes we have to face some losses and damages in the scientific investigative activity. Yet there was a piece of tongue hanging. It was purple. Even with these skin fissures that were bleeding, I couldn't open its mouth again. I, I, I couldn't go back. Now its green color became pale and its face muscles were stiffened. Now it resembled a real dead creature. It was completely different. I sat down and had some tea. It didn't take long for the snowstorm to begin. Unable to carry the whole body, I tried to rip the head off using my sharp instrument. Gusts of wind and snow were harsh and there was so much skin, fat, cartilage and bone that I gave up on its head. But I managed to cut the piece of tongue that was hanging. 92 centimeters long and one meter and three width. I wrapped the huge purple tongue in some garbage bags, tied it to my trailer and managed to get it here. The remains of the body were left in the snow. I called some search teams, but no one found it. It just disappeared. But the tongue didn't disappear. Well, I wouldn't leave it for a second. It arrived at the lab in an advanced state of putrefaction, and it was my fault, of course. I just refused to take the tongue out of my apartment and bring it to the university. I had scientific investigative reasons. I have lived alone for a long time and the tongue could take up the space of an entire room, a bathroom. I left it under the shower because I didn't want it to dry out. I covered it with oil every other day. Sometimes I brush the dust and the flies eggs using a very small brush. One night, it had a spasm. Maybe it was a reflex, I thought. My heart had never raced this much. Well, 
someone convinced me and after a long conversation and that's why we are here today. Ladies and gentlemen, dear students, here's the tongue. Look at the roughness. Look at the large and disproportionate grooves. Notice that even in this state, it's still a piece of something. Look at it, but don't touch it. Analyze it, but far from it. We are chatting today with Fernanda Rocha, the writer of Scientific. She, uh, a little bit about Fernanda, she was born in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and currently lives there. She is a playwright, screenwriter, and researcher. She was part of the 11th CSC Dramaturgy Centre, where she wrote the play Products, that will premiere next April. She was also awarded by the 9th CSC Young Playwrights Competition for the text Love or a Monster, and had short plays staged in several projects, such as Tuesday on the Scene. She graduated in film studies and is now a PhD candidate at the University of Sao Paulo, where she researches the intermedial relationship between modern American theatrical dramaturgy and classic cinema. She has also just released her first book, a collection of short plays called Shadow. Welcome, Fernando. It's great to be talking to you today. And uh, Thank you. I'm very happy to be here with you today. And hosting this is uh, myself, Lily McLeish, and my co-host, Josephine Start. Hello, hi. So uh, first off, as we always do in nice nice and fine tradition, we are going to ask you, do you have a suite with a story behind it? <laughs> yeah, actually I have. Um, there is this very popular candy here in, Bra in Brazil, which I really love. Its name is Pasoca. I don't know if you know. It's a Brazilian peanut candy and uh, it's really popular here. You have uh, this crushed peanuts like crumbs, and these crumbs uh, form small cylinders. And pasoca is this uh, small cylinder of peanut and sugar, smash it and mix it together. So I always loved this candy, and when I was a child, I, I don't know why. But I think Pasoka wasn't so uh, popular as it is now. Or maybe children didn't like it so much. At least my friends didn't. 
I think uh, was that kind of candy that only adults would enjoy. So I felt that I was uh, the only person in the world, except for my mother, that really was into pasoka. But well, pasoka has this kind of sand texture. It's like something we have here that it is, uh, how can I say, uh, farofa, farinha, that is something that looks like sand. <laughs> And, um, and I remember when I was a child, and this is a very embarrassing thing to confess here, but I remember eating sand at the beach, thinking that it would taste like pasoka, but of course it didn't. <laughs> and I don't remember getting sick or something like that for eating sand, but okay. And now everybody that I know loves pasoka. All the adults love pasoka, and I don't eat sand anymore, of course. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but it's a really great candy, and uh, has this texture of sand, but has the color of sand uh, too. So that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I'd really. I mean, I've, I've never. I don't think I've ever had it because when you described it at first, I thought maybe you meant like a peanut brittle but it sounds like the peanuts very small like really really tiny pieces um, yeah it, it's really it's tiny pieces mixed with sugar and but they are together so looks like a sand like when you have sand and water and you mix it and you do a cast off sand really? it's that it's more or less that kind of texture um, and it's really small and it's really popular here. And inspired sweet. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to, to talk about your wonderful play, uh, which, which you've just heard. And we, um, it's just brilliant, Fernanda. Well, well done. It's, it's great. So I wanted to ask about bodies because obviously the piece is, uh, you know, we're dealing with this big body and relationship to bodies is something I was interested in. So there's this sort of sensuality at times where you've got the protagonist riding the tongue and then also kind of in relation to all this mucus and then then it's sort of quite a violent relationship to the body with the cutting off the tongue. And then, um, so there's always different relationships. And, uh, and I wondered how much uh, this piece was about objectification for you. So objectification mm -hmm. of bodies. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, I, I think it's my, um, well, I think it's only possible to really engage with something through the body, even uh, with small things, uh, we understand the world through our body, our sense. So the body med mediates everything. And uh, I think it's entirely possible to read the play as a story of objectification, as you said, because, and you know that I am also a researcher. So I think this is very present in the test and it's an important thing to me. And uh, to do research, you are going to need an object. This is the scientific method as we know it. So you will need a subject of study. And in Portuguese, we use the word object to talk about our subject of research. Mm -hmm. uh, no matter what are you researching, if it's a more not so physical thing, you know, yeah. maybe you, you may be researching things that are not so... Uh, touchable, but we, yeah, but we 
usually use the word object. So I think there is uh, this move, this movement of transforming something that really fascinates you, that you have a lot of curiosity and even love into an object of study through a kind of rationalist, rationalist and utilitarian method or thought. But on the other hand, this object of study is also an object of deep desire. Mm -hmm. So I think we can say that uh, uh, this piece is a piece about objectification, of course. Yeah, it's interesting because as you say, you are also a researcher. And in yeah. the play, I really can feel that your love of your, you know, you know, the love that the researcher feels for the object. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and that really I found that quite striking. And at the same time, what I found was quite striking is how actually on the flip side of that, how you sort of portray the yeah, an almost sort of violent, an act of violence towards the object. Mm-hmm. So it sort of felt like to me like it was balancing between love and violence somehow and how that sort of yeah what what were you playing with within your writing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and I I think that's that's a big question at least for me Mm. because um, when we love something how to not become I don't know obsessive uh, how to measure our impulses how to control intrusion and violence and is this love I don't know why I really don't know if it is but uh, I really think that violence and power relations and I always try to show it in my pieces that violence and power relations are very present in our everyday life even connected with the way we learn to love the way we learn to get closer to something especially in Brazil that is a very violent country so and there is this thing that everybody that reads this play uh, tells me a different story about uh, that researcher or about what is really happening there. Mm -hmm. And someone told me that this piece was a kind of necrophilic soft porn. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's very curious because it was not my intention. I I didn't want to write a soft porn necrophilic thing. But sexual tensions are always present in my writing uh, and usually linked with power relations. So I think that the case here, she kind of violates a body and takes from it what uh, matters to her. And um, that's it. I think it's a very uh, complex relationship. Yeah. It's really interesting because you you're talking about kind of it, it's setting within a Brazilian context and the idea of violence, but may, but but maybe also kind of an approach to to love. Yeah. What it put me in mind of a, a lot was conversations around decolonializing museums, which mm-hmm. is happening a lot in the UK. I don't I don't know if that's a conversation that's happening in Brazil, but yeah, the idea of the colonial figure who both is fascinated by and loves this thing but is also kind of capturing it and taking it and enacting violence on it I wonder yeah. if that was something that was on your mind or maybe it's maybe that's just something that was in my in my reading yeah uh sort of I think um I think there is this uh, strong ima- imaginary of the explorer of the um, archaeologist mm. and 
and uh, something uh, that is kind of Indian Jones, uh, which is totally colonialist. And uh, I think this is present in the text, yes. And of course, when we think about this approach to, to the other and this violent approach to the other, uh, I think, he, and especially here in Brazil, that we are a, a country that was col colonized. I don't know if it's the word. It was colonized and everything. I think that the violence issue is very present. And there is one spe specific thing that reminds me that the 19th century uh, rationalist and colonialist method that is the way the scientist measures the school of the body she finds. And this, uh, I don't know a lot about it, but this was a practice of the 19th century scientific racism, the measurement of the heads for a kind of racist segmentation. So although I didn't want to make it this very explicit in the text, I think it's something that is there, of course. Was there a specific thing, actually? Was it sort of, what, what inspired you to write it in the first place? Oh, yeah, yes. Uh, th this is not uh, an easy question to, to answer. No, it's not an easy question. <laughs> no, I agree. Not an easy question. <laughs> in fact, in, fact in, in my notes is the most, is the longer notes that I have. <laughs> it's about it <laughs> because of, most of the things that I write, I have more than one starting point. I think I'm always influenced influenced by a set of different kinds of stuff. And one thing that usually happens is that I have some external things which pressures pressure me to write. Mm -hmm. And of course, at the same time, I have some inner issues, mm. uh, things that I need to process and chill and digest things that will definitely show up in the writing, no matter what exactly I'm writing about. So um, most of my texts really fit into this kind of dynamic. So it was in the middle of 2020. I have this really great group of playwright friends. I truly love them. And since the pandemic started, we've been having these online meetings. Some of them were, were a kind of writing workshops in which we'd usually show to each other what we've been writing. And at that time, we were trying to write sci-fi pieces. Mm -hmm. So I was studying sci-fi and researching things about it. And at the end of the process, some of the texts would be performed online. So the meeting, the meetings with this great group of writers and the idea that I could have my piece performed online were things that motivated me to write it. So this was the external thing that pressured me to write this play. On the other hand, when I actually sat down to write this piece, I was missing so much the physical contact with people, the social contact in person because of the pandemic, of course. And I believe that this void, the, the, this nostalgia of the past in which you, we could touch each other was a kind of atmosphere, was really present in a way, and it appears in the, te in the text, I think, but it, it was a kind of atmosphere of that moment. And I don't really like to start writing when I am absolutely sure of what I want to talk about. So little by little, the text reveals itself. 
but I, I try to have a pretty solid starting point. In this case, I think it was the relationship with a body that we don't know that is a strange body that is completely unknown. And as I was writing, I noted that the scientific curiosity issue was taking place. And this is a very common topic on sci-fi narratives, but it's also an important issue to me. As I said before, in addition to being a playwright and screenwriter, I'm also a researcher. And questions about the relationship between researcher and subject or object are always surrounding me. So um, as a researcher, we are always seeking ways to approach a topic and how to get closer to an object. And of course, this involves many ethical issues. So I began to realize while writing that the monster may not be the giant green man, of course, but actually the researcher. And I think we can read it thinking, who is the monster here? And this reflects this cultural clashes and clashes of domination. And uh, while we see this very unethical researcher, we can try also to understand her fascination or maybe be fascinated by that giant tongue as well. Mm-hmm. It's quite disturbing, really, because you're you're in the you're in the mind of the oppressor in the play. You know, mm. you're, <laughs> you're on yes. her side. Yes. So you're sort of sympathizing with her, which and what I love about it's interesting you talking about science fiction as your as your base as the kind of stimulus because I think yeah. as a genre this is just totally personally for me but science fiction is a really tricky one where sometimes it really puts me off just the idea of science fiction which is totally rubbish but I think it's this I this sense that I have that sometimes it's not the most human doesn't feel the most kind of uh, emotionally deep I mean I'm, I'm, this is going to elicit a lot of uh, <laughs> frustrations I think which obviously isn't the case but I think your text is an example of of brilliant science fiction where it's still got these you know relationship um, is at the heart of it and it's still got these kind of very full characters mm-hmm. characters just going back to what you were saying about your kind of the balance that you strike as a researcher and a writer the piece ends with the line analyze it but far from it which I was really struck by and I wondered what's the relationship between analyzing a subject and distance from a subject for you as a writer Mm -hmm. yeah I think as a writer I think that even if I don't speak directly about my life experiences or about real events, uh, my subjectivity will always be involved in what I write. So usually the things that bother me deeply in a more bodily or physical way are, are what produce my best writing, I think. Uh, When I try to write about something far away, something important for the moment, but that doesn't really touch my body in any way, doesn't really, uh, yeah, touch my body in in some way, it feels like uh, writing becomes meaningless to me and sometimes even boring. Mm -hmm. So in this case, uh, because it is a sci-fi fantasy, there are a lot of things that aren't close to me, of course, like 
uh, I've never seen snow, for example, but questions like scientific curiosity and the and relationships that works with violence, I don't know, the violence, the violent, violence issue and obsession and love are kind of, uh, and, and the way it happens there are, I don't know, are feelings or experiences that I am intimate with. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's it. So, and, and, and I try to transform these experiences or feelings or things that I, I, I feel into a poetic form. And actually, I am a very shy person, so I think if I, I write things that, I don't know, nobody can, can look at me and say, oh, Fernanda really uh, is that researcher because, you know, it's a very, uh, it's a fantasy thing. So I like to write this thing that is not so, things that doesn't look so closer to me, mm-hmm. uh, but in fact, the, the, thoughts and the sensations and the feelings uh, are all surrounding me are deep, are things that are um, deeply I don't know yeah yeah no I know what you mean it's you're reminding me of um some writing advice I heard from a screenwriter friend uh, rev- advice she was given which was I think she submitted a page to a, a quite a famous established screenwriter they read it and they said it's really good but you need more blood on the page. And it was this, this idea of like, it needs to have a little bit of you, just a touch of you in here because it's too yeah. far. And you talking about, it needs to touch my body. I just, I love that expression as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, what you were saying about, you know, your writing is very poetic. I think I, it was something that really struck me as well as how I really love the way you write. And for me, it's quite unusual. We read quite a lot, well, a couple of Brazilian plays that were submitted to us. And I did think that all of them had a, had a touch more of surrealism to them. And I'd be mm-hmm. really interested in talking maybe later on a bit about like, just like the Brazilian writing culture, because I think it is quite different to the British one and the German, maybe slightly, slightly closer to the German, but very far, I think, from the British writing Mm-hmm. Uh, genre or tradition but what I'm really intrigued by as well in your play is because I am a director and of course I read these plays and I'm immediately thinking okay how would I solve this visually how would I stage this was there anything in your when you wrote I mean I can really sense that you're a screenwriter as well and that's something I find really exciting for theatre is that you are really visual as well in the way you've written it if you were to stage it what did you have any sort of ideas how you would love to stage it? Yeah, I think there's many possibilities, but I, I like to imagine that we would see a lecture that is going to become more and more uh, strange and dark, or we could see an archaeologist in an abstract dreamlike space, something like that, which gradually reveals itself to be the space for a lecture. Mm. Uh, because, um, and I, I think the movement of revealing and hiding, of showing and not showing, of opening and closing, it's important. And it's something that uh, actually it is in the text. And, uh, and I think this is a thing that could be 
on stage, I see her as someone trying to not show her obsession, her passion, but this obsession ends up escaping. So, and I think it's a little bit how I, I feel in, as a woman in the world, I don't know, like this thing that we trying to show and hide and I don't know, the, this ambiguous thing of being, I don't know. And um, everybody that asks it to me asks about the tongue. And, uh, but I, I, I don't know if I, I'd like to see the tongue perhaps not seeing it and just drying it in our imagination as we imagine the, the man's body would be something that would please me more because I really like to, I, I like to, to have this imaginary space, to have this space that is, is in the mind of who is watching uh, that piece mm. and also as reference I think of uh, horror movies or sci-fi movies uh, but uh, because I like this this kind of atmosphere uh, this kind of mood because I really like to work with the suspense mm. um, the suspense element in my place and actually the play was uh, it was performed on zoom uh, we had one, one experience on Zoom on May 2021, mm-hmm. um, and uh, was very nice. But it was uh, with Zoom; it, it's very different from stage. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was directed by me, mm-hmm. and we had actually we had a lot of sound things happen. Mm-hmm. So the sound was very important, and the actress was in a completely dark room with only few lights and using some few scenic elements to, to tell the story. It was like some, someone telling a story to you and using some scenic elements. Yeah, no, definitely. I think um, it's it's so much scarier, isn't it, to not see the thing and to... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you see it, you reduce it. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I suppose that the animal or the object was so vivid in my head that I was going, do we see this? (laughs) Like, what is it? (laughs) Yeah, because what I really love is that, and and I talked about it with Sandra yesterday, but uh, what I really love is that everybody that reads the texts tell me a different a different history about the researcher and about the monster and about the what is happening here and and uh, you know everyone has a different yeah. thought about it. I think even even tonally, I was thinking because there's the the amazing bit with the tongue in the bath, and I was thinking on the one hand that's a horrendous image, but it's also kind of a cartoonish image mm-hmm. <laughs> so that you, if mm-hmm. you stage it you can only have one version of it can't you can eat it it kind of you can't then flip it and be like oh actually it it looks and feels like this it's uh, mm-hmm. yeah so that's yes 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 I agree yeah so yeah so I'm interested in your um writing practice because I think it's always interesting to ask writers 
how they get any writing done um, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> for other writers to know. And obviously it looks very different for lots of people. So for you, um, how, do you how do you like to write? What's your practice like? Yeah, what most inspires me in the, um, for writing, I think, is the strangeness of some everyday experiences. Because I think the strangeness can reveal some, um, some deep contradictions in human beings and in our social, social everyday life. And I mean, a lot of things in my personal life really inspire me. And of course, the social environment in which I am inserted as well. But this deep desire to sit down and to write comes when there's something I can't understand, something that makes me really uncomfortable and uh, something that is not easy. So then I know I'll have cool things to explore there. And I'm also very inspired by other works of art or entertainment, like in the case of scientific. As I said, it was a set of things, but I remember that in in addition to everything that I've already said, I had this very clear image of a man's head frozen in the snow, an image that I had seen in some popular series and got stuck in my mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, that thing that you are always thinking about, it's one image, but it's a strong image. So that's it. I'm also very inspired by other works of art. And sometimes a sentence from a book or an image from a movie, as I said, or an an object can lead me to write a play. But in any case, the play will reflect my inner contradictions and my strangeness and discomfort. These are things that move me to write. And usually I write a lot and then I cut more than half of what I wrote because I like to leave, uh, as I said before, I like to leave a kind of space so those who watch it can complete in their minds. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, th- this is, uh, I write a lot and then I cut a lot and uh, I write again and then I cut a lot again. <laughs> Until I have this little, I don't know how to say, um, like a condensed part, this part of reality, you know, I like, I like to, yeah, and I really enjoy to write short pieces because it is, it is easier to have a part of life, a part of everyday life or a part of a bigger play, but a play that, that only who are watching or listening or reading will have in mind. And another thing that I think it's nice to say is that it was the first monologue I wrote. Uh, I I really love writing dialogues. So this play is different from what I usually write. Mm. um, That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Did it feel different to your other writing in, in terms of being just the monologue? Did the, did the style feel different to you? or Not so much. It, it's, it's different, but not so much. I think the, the things that the text were much longer. And as I do in dialogues, I cut off a lot of things 
so we can see only a part of it mm. and um yeah that's and I, I think it's the most uh fantasy it, it's uh, I, I don't i don't usually write fantasy mm -hmm. i was i was interested as well because we were recently talking about this with, uh on the podcast actually with maria arberg who's a swedish director working in the uk and sweden and uh she was asking us about yeah we were talking about international playwrights and how you know the podcast is obviously international and it's for writers worldwide and uh, the difficulty of that of the request therefore though to submit in english and i think you wrote this originally in portuguese didn't you and then mm -hmm. did you translate it or did you have someone translate it or how does that work for you or how does it feel to have it sort of in a different language how does that sort of yeah actually i wrote it in portuguese and then i translated it and it was really challenging i had the help of a great friend of mine who is an english teacher thank you virginia <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but i i think the the most challenging thing was trying to create a similar rhythm or cadence for the words because portuguese is a more prolix or verbose language. And this can be very helpful sometimes for some characters, especially for a professor or a researcher. Mm -hmm. And when you put it in English, everything gets shorter and more direct. So I think that really changed things. But uh, I am very happy with this text in English and the I was feeling like I was thinking, will they understand it? <laughs> like, I know the English is right, but uh, will they understand everything that is happening here? And I think that, and I think, <laughs> do you understood? So, um, yeah, I think it's, yeah. uh, it worked. But um, we, we Brazilians, are, we are exposed to a huge amount of North American cultural products, which ends up making English very present in everyday life, even for those who do not speak the language. Mm -hmm. So English, it's everywhere here. But um, I've never written anything directly in English. And I don't know if I could, maybe one day. Mm. Anyway, I think the work of, uh, uh, of a translator is fundamental for literature, dramaturgy and theater. And it's one of the works that I admire the most. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. It's a really interesting thing because it's not just about a literal translation or the translation of the word into correct sort of gr grammar or sentences, yeah. but it's like about capturing the nuance and the sort of the subtlety and the subtext and also the atmosphere that the writer has written. That's the thing I think that is the sort yeah. of skill of it. Yeah, yeah. It's not easy. And um yeah, and for this interview, I prepared myself so much <laughs> because even talking English sometimes, it's not a... Uh, Portuguese is very different from English. Portuguese is a Latin language. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Well, your English is incredibly good. 
And yeah. if we had oh. had to have done this in Portuguese, it would have been very hard for me and Josephine. We speak. Yeah. But I'm so intrigued mm. about the theatre scene in Brazil, in Brazil or Sao Paulo, where you mm-hmm. are. I mean, what is the sort of, is there a dominant sort of theatre? Uh, okay, so I put it this way. In the UK, I always think that naturalism is sort of the mm-hmm. dominant theatre, how do you say, sort of um, tradition or? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It feels like it's very naturalistic and it's very, I don't know, it doesn't. Con- conversational naturalistic uh, mm-hmm. would, would be your, your very traditional and it is mostly traditional obviously there's there's stuff that isn't that but I would say your your standard English theatre season would mm-hmm. have all that. yeah mm-hmm. and what, mm-hmm. what what's it like in in Sao Paulo where you are yeah I think Sao Paulo is a really great city and one thing that I, I really like here is that we have a range of different theatre groups and the diff- different um, approaches to, to theater, to uh, different styles. So we have some groups that uh, work with Brecht. So you can find people who only study and work with Brecht, Brechtian theater. If you like musical theater, you can also find the hair and um, performative theater. There's every everything. <laughs> and I think uh, in, in England, is the same, yeah, natural, naturalism is the most thing present. I think the most commercial thing, thinking in commercial theater. But when you, you do not think in commercial theater, you think in some uh, experimental experiences. So you can find uh, different things, really different things. But I think Sao Paulo is a great city for everyone who wants to be involved with theater in Brazil. Actually, I only start, started writing for theater when I arrived in Sao Paulo five years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I was born in Sao Paulo, but I, I lived in the countryside uh, for a long time. And uh, in the countryside, we didn't have many, many new or fresh plays there. So I arrived in Sao Paulo uh, five years ago, actually. And when I got here, I took some free workshops, free courses with great people, great theater professionals who, uh, who are fundamental to me, who have opened many doors and pointed out many paths for me, for my writing. Mm. So, and Sao Paulo have a really good uh, initi- initiatives for playwriters, like courses, some scholarships, uh, theater festivals and people who really encourage encourage many projects in dramaturgy and writing. We ha- we also have some specific public funding for writing and publishing dramaturgy, for uh, example. But however, I think these actions aren't enough especially after the beginning of the pandemic, because we have a lot of people wanting to write or to direct or to act much more than the opportunities that we have here. Mm. So when you look at the competition for public funding or for a prize, you realize that it's really not enough. And as the economic economic situation in Brazil is not so good, it is almost impossible to make a living working with theater. So there is a lot of good 
good stuff, good things here, but uh, it's not commercial, you know, you, can, you can't make a living uh, with this kind of theater. Mm. Um, is it I'm just wondering is it um is it a country that has an exodus of artists to other countries like is there somewhere that people do people tend to go to North America or or is is that something that happens a lot because I know that can happen um you know lots of countries have it's just the case that their scene is not big enough and so people tend to leave to make their art or that's a trajectory that can happen is that something that happens in Brazil as well um, uh, you mean people leave, uh, leave Brazil to other countries? Yeah, I'm just thinking there are I'm just some of the people we spoke to in, in, in some other countries and some other cities where they, they've moved so that they can pursue mm -hmm. their career in the arts more easily. It, and yeah. so there's a bit of an exodus. Is that something that occurs in Brazil? Oh, yes, I, I think if, I, I think it occurs. And actually now that uh, we had a lot of loss with pandemic and with our go government, we are in a very difficult moment for arts and cultural things. And uh, so a lot of artists really moved to another country, mm. but there, there are uh, who stay here. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of people is like me in a university, you know, or in a school with a public founding or something like that. But it's very few people because there aren't so much initiatives. Mm. So I think we're sadly probably coming close to the end of our, of our chat. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much again. I'm wondering if you could let us know uh, which women in the arts or otherwise inspire you. Yeah, uh, there, there, there are a lot of women. It's really difficult. <laughs> I was thinking about this question. And, oh my God. <laughs> but when I think about writing for theater, I, I choose to, to talk about women that writes for theater. Mm. There are these three women, two Brazilians and a British one mm. that truly changed my way of seeing and understanding theater and dramaturgy. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I first read the work of these three women, I started to think theater and writing in a different way, maybe in a more free, experimental and poetic way. Mm. And so the Brazilians are Grace Passo and Silvia Gomez. And the British one is Carol Churchill. Uh, I wondered if you might mention her. Just <laughs> <laughs> not knowing your writing, I did wonder. Yeah, and uh, but to talk about the... Um, these women. Um, Grace Passo is an actress, playwright, and now she has been working as a film director as well. And her writing is profoundly lyrical and ordinary at the same time. And she works with subjects that uh, are often di difficult to, to work with without failing into a cliche. And she works with it in a very innovative way. For example, issues involving the body of black women. She, she does it in Dazed Flash, which she, I think is her best known monologue. It's amazing. She's really amazing. And I, 
I love Grace Passo. <laughs> I, I need to talk about her here. Yeah. And uh, Silvia Gomez is, I am a big fan of Silvia Gomez because I identify a lot, of, a lot with a non-realistic style of her writing. And she's a very important writer here in Brazil. And she definitely is not a, a realistic or naturalistic writer. And she's very important and famous. And she works with uh, uh, this kind of dreamlike elements in everyday life. And in fact, it was Silvia Gomez who introduced me to Carol Churchill's work. So this is amazing. And I am very grateful yeah. for that. Yeah. And yeah, and Churchill, <laughs> do you know Churchill? But yeah. actually, here, <laughs> actually, here in Brazil, we don't have a lot of translations of her, her works. I think we don't have a commercial translation of her. I had just a little contact with her work in reading informal translations. Like we have some theater groups that do this kind of translations, this informal translations, to, to work with it. And then we, when I, I say we, I am talking about playwriters and people who are very inter interesting in dramaturgy. We kind of share these informal translations. And um, so I come to, to know Churchill in, in this informal, with these informal translations. And um, well, that, this is a problem here. So I think we need more yeah, uh, sound like more, yeah. Uh, more translations like and pu publications of writers in Portuguese. Yeah, it sounds like there's a sort of market, uh, a sort of a hole in the market where we need to go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You need to translate your work into Portuguese. Yes, exactly, exactly. And uh, but that's it. The, but but if I open more to to think about women, there is a lot of. Uh, like now I am reading this incredible book of Carson McCullers, which is a, a great American novelist. Uh, its, name is, its name is um, the, the Heart is a Lonely Hunter. It's her first romance, first novel. Okay. And uh, it's really good. I really like to recommend and in cinema, because I need to talk about cinema because uh, it's my background, yeah. uh, my academic background. Mm. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the Argentine filmmaker Lucrecia Martel. And I think that in addition to her films, which are all wonderful, the interview classes and everything she says mm. communicates a lot with me and the things that I enjoy and the things that I write. So yeah, I think that brilliant. That's it. This is a great. I'm I'm desperate to go and look all these things up now. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> they sound amazing. Okay, well, thank you so so much, Fernanda. This has been amazing. Just brilliant. yeah, it's been thank you. to you. So welcome now to our interview with our very special guest, Molly Flatt, um, still with me, Joe and Lily McLeish. Yep. Hello. Hello, Lily again. And uh, and hi, Molly. Hello. Hi, lovely to be here. Nice to, to have you. you. So, uh, Molly Flatt is an author and journalist living in London. 
She's comment editor of The Bookseller, where she also runs Future Book, the biggest book conference in the UK. And she's co-founder with Kit Deval of The Big Book Weekend, a free virtual book festival accessible to all, supported by BBC Arts and Arts Council England. She writes and speaks on tech and books for the likes of The Guardian, The Evening Standard and the BBC. And she's been described as utterly original by Stylist, deeply delicious by, SF, uh, by SFX. And her debut no novel, uh, The Charmed Life of Alex Moore, is out now. Um, so it's fantastic to have you here, Molly. Thank you so much for agreeing to be here. Oh, it, it's wonderful to just talk to some human beings who aren't in my head for, for, 40, <laughs> for a few minutes in the day. So thank you. So Molly, we're called Fizzy Sherbet and we love to ask our special guests to get them to talk a bit about a suite that they have from their childhood that they might have a story attached to in some way. Gosh, well, I could probably tell you the sweet licorice all sorts were always my poison of choice um, I'm not not sure I have a story attached to sweets really I mean the only story I can think about was um my, my big association with sweets and buying licorice all sorts was the small rural village in Oxfordshire I grew up in had a post office that properly spelled sold penny sweets not from kind of you know gorgeous vintage jars like you get in like you know shops in Shoreditch where I live now um, but you know just kind of scummy plastic plastic buckets but um yeah that it's such a strong memory of my childhood and really makes me feel ancient like I'm a character in like Lark Rise to Candleford or something like that I'm not sure if such things exist anymore or if you can buy individual sweets for a penny do pennies exist anymore do they still mint them I don't know mm. um but yeah you know buying sweets is associated with kind of wandering around around our village kind of making up stories in my head and walking the dog um and yeah kind of dreaming of being anywhere other than this little village in Oxfordshire really <laughs> Yeah, it is very, very English, the idea of the penny sweets, I think. Weird. Um, They're very non-pandemic yeah. friendly. Yeah, definitely. It does, but I remember I talking to kind of Australian friends in Australia, like I, I mentioned penny sweets, and they were like, that's not real. That's a kind of Enid Blyton. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're an illustration of yourself in this moment. Yeah. Um, so why don't you tell us, Molly, awful question really, but your biog is so broad and, yeah. uh, and fascinating. Tell us a little bit about what you do. <laughs> well, I mean, right, so for the bookseller, um, I'm comment editor, which is a brilliant job because I get to commission and edit and publish opinion pieces. Um, for the site online. So the bookseller is the kind of trade publication for the book publishing industry in the UK. It's been around since 18 something, around 1850, I think. So, you know, old but utterly vibrant um, and has a kind of weekly print magazine and a website. So I, I, I first um, worked with the bookseller when I did a, a marketing keynote for them back in the days when I worked in um, kind of technology and digital marketing um, and slowly managed to kind of combine my, my two passions, which were, were technology and books, and helped program their annual conference, Future Book. Um, and that, that developed in just kind of a deeper and broader role, I guess. Um, so that, that's a wonderful thing and keeps me connected to the industry and keeps me uh, listening to and hearing from all kinds of different voices about all aspects of publishing. And yeah, I also write books. So as you mentioned, my first novel was published a few years ago. I'm currently knee deep in edits and rewrites for my second. 
And I also do copywriting on the side. I always think it's important to kind of have a total transparency when it comes to like jobs in the arts. So where I make my most money is kind of with a good hourly rate doing corporate copy copywriting, which I actually really kind of enjoy. I kind of see it as um, like doing scales <laughs> with language. Um, and, you know, they're discrete projects which have a, you know, three or four hour time scale and I do it and it's done. And that's utterly pleasurable when, the rest of the time I'm kind of working on something as sprawling and impossible as a novel. Mm. Yeah, I'm really, yeah, it's, I'm glad you mentioned that. I remember that being a conversation, the conversation around people being more open, artists being more open about day jobs, how they actually make their money, that sort of thing that was sort of, sort of happening pre-pandemic a bit, a tiny mm. bit. And then I think it's sort of, stopped again I mean maybe I'm wrong but um I remember it sort of picked up steam because there is a reality to a creative life which is that unless you are you know wealthy obviously everyone starts off with lots of other other jobs and it's great to hear what those are you write about tech as well specifically don't you yeah I, I, much I, I used to much more I guess as I've kind of inched more into the publishing world and had the the kind of fortune to be able to focus on my own writing a bit um I've kind of kind of moved away a little bit because I used to be much more kind of immersed in that world when I was consulting but I still love helping to organize things like book tech which is a startup kind of pitch off that I founded which is one strand of the future book conference um so that's really fun talking to founders and innovators who are kind of coming up with new models and new ideas for the book industry but yeah for a while I kind of worked in digital and word of mouth marketing kind of back in the early days when if you were like 22 and you had a blog and you know you went on second life mm. um you which is by the way having an amazing resurgence including with book clubs you know, you were kind of qualified to be a high level consultant teaching C-suite executives in Palo Alto how to, how to like communicate with their audience. Um, so I guess I was kind of right place, right time. But um, yeah, going back to my comment about the Oxfordshire village, I think I discovered, you know, as quite an early adopter on our clunky old gateway computer at home of blogs and social spaces and forums and places where I could discuss things and be a different person than I was in my kind of all-girls school in Oxfordshire. You know, I was super interested in science fiction and fantasy and graphic novels. And, um, you know, it was a massive X-Files geek and American Gothic geek and Space Above and Beyond geek. And there was literally, as far as I could tell, one other person in my school who was vaguely interested about any of that stuff. Um, so I found it hugely liberating. It was absolutely that sense of kind of brave new world. So I guess my career kind of started in that maker's utopia that came with the beginning of social media and the real kind of popularization of those platforms where we all thought it was going to be a massive positive force for good mm. and change the world um sadly obviously it's turned out not to be quite that simple but uh yeah my, my origins were definitely kind of deeply embedded in the internet really and and sort of to just sort of draw the line now to the play scientific because this play sort of also really looks at or you know sort of negotiates the genre of science fiction which we don't actually see that often in theatre at the moment and uh, one of the things that we were really drawn to talk to you about today as well was that you wrote a short story for science fiction for a science fiction collection called Women Inventing the Future 
And uh, so I was really intrigued in talking to you about like, what was your experience writing for this short story and what was your sort of, what were the challenges and what was your outcome? Yeah, absolutely. It was, um, it was, I, I love the idea of this anthology. It was oh, 2018, I think it came out. It was um, organized by Dot Everyone, which is sadly now defunct, but it was, um, active for about five years. It was founded by Martha Lane Fox and it was a think tank all about kind of democratizing technology and trying to get as many different voices and perspectives and influences of people who might ne not necessarily see themselves as, I guess, capable or qualified um, of doing that to help shape the digital world and the digital future. Because I think, you know, there can increasingly be a sense that if you can't code or if you're not super fluent um, in kind of digital structures that then you don't have a, a voice, you don't have a um, any power in how you can kind of help shape our future. So the, the, the anthology specifically was, um, I've got, I've got the blurb here, was, uh, was designed um, in the hope that different stories about the future written by and featuring women might make it easier for more women and girls to succeed as inventors, innovators and entrepreneurs. So there was a very specific um, drive there, which is a, an interesting thing to interrogate in itself about the, the influence of fiction, I guess, on mm -hmm. who we become and where we go in the world and if it could inspire more girls and women to study STEM subjects and um, branch out into, into kind of fields where, yeah, I guess they, they felt that they had that kind of direct impact on changing the world. I felt like a total charlatan, really, when I was invited to do this. I mean, my, my, my debut novel, oh, it's kind of science fiction. It's very confusing. It's, it confuses bookshops. It confuses everyone, really. My agent pitched it as Bridget Jones meets the Matrix which gives you an idea of, you know, why I'm struggling to, to tell you whether it's science fiction or not. But, you know, it's kind of sci-fi fantasy crossover with commercial fiction. So to begin with, I kind of thought I'm not enough of a science fiction writer. I don't write enough of the hard stuff. You know, I haven't done deep research into quantum physics. I haven't done any kind of space operas. But also, I'm very much not a woman who studied STEM subjects and went into any of those kind of professions. You know, I studied English literature, did a postgraduate in, in acting um, and went on to kind of work in, in marketing and consultancy and, and, and journalism and, you know, all these very, I guess, kind of female gendered um, topics. But all of those things made it really, really interesting to write and to grapple with. And I've always loved science fiction. Um, so, you know, the next challenge was, so what is this supposed to be about women in science fiction? But, but frankly, I ended up just getting on and writing it. All of those, all of those theoretical kind of ideas and, and concepts in your head, I think when you're writing a piece of fiction, you just have to let go of and write something you're interested in and write a character you're interested in and who comes to you. Um, but, you know, my, my, my character Ellis in the short story is older, so I think she's about 46 um and she's not I guess she's not 
very glamorous and that I think that was probably a bit of a backlash against a lot of the sci-fi women I had read growing up you know I was a huge fan of Neil Stevenson and William Gibson and utterly adored all of these like you know like Angelina Jolie and Hackers or Case Pollard in um, Pattern Recognition all of these super cool cyberpunks I mean Lisbeth Salander is definitely in there as well um you know hot girls in leather with purple hair um, and just totally felt like I wasn't that at all. I was like this puppyish, enthusiastic little girl from the countryside who could never be that um, sophisticated and glamorous and tough. Um, and so I guess she was a bit of reaction against that and that I wanted her to feel to feel not to any of those things. Um, but she is a she is a tech founder and, and, and the story kind of came about from the collision of two books I was reading at the time. Uh, not two books, a, a book I was reading at the time was by Matthew Walker, his, his book about sleep, why we sleep, which is absolutely amazing. And um, I'd recently seen a production of Macbeth and those two things kind of congealed into my head into this near future sleep science story, which I read it back just before this call because uh, I thought I should refresh my memory. And actually it is though really interesting how much kind of in there about gender politics and about femaleness and what it means for Ellis to be a female founder of a kind of pioneering sleep tech company. Mm. Um, and I guess there is a lot in there about relationships. There's a romantic relationship kind of at the heart of the story. But, you know, I'm always wary about talking about this stuff because you know, me in, me suggesting that relationships and intimacy and sex is kind of a naturally female, they, they are naturally female fiction tropes is in itself like a massive cliche and generalization. So tricky stuff to talk about. All I can say is that's what I wrote. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, oh God, this is just so, so much brilliant stuff in there to unpack. I think one thing you were talking about, the, the characters, we're talking about this kind of leather clad, purple head, character yeah I suppose it sort of um a read of that is that that's a character through the male gaze and that actually it's striking but not surprising that you and also Fernando in Scientific have these mm. very different protagonists who are um which is not to say they're not they're not sexual but it's not sexualized uh -huh, uh -huh. in the same way potentially and I wonder a little bit about um because like you say it's so tricky to, <laughs> to have these conversations without sort of slipping into like problematic or lazy gender stereotyping but on the other hand I was saying to Lily so I think I sometimes struggle with the idea of science fiction in my head of kind of being like do I want to watch or read some scientific some science fiction no because it sort of feels like cold and metallic and over there and not mine mm. but actually I watched um Petite Maman recently by Celine Siama which is um technically a sci-fi film it's mm -hmm. but it's but it's very very human and it's about two, you know a little girl finding the girl version of her mum in the forest and it's actually about exploring growing up with a depressed parent and I think the thing about I don't know if you've seen it but um the thing about it that I found sort of enticing and welcoming and exciting was that it was sci-fi but that it was about the relationships it wasn't kind of heavy on detail about how the scientific construct worked mm. and part of me was thinking 
is this related to gender? Like, because this is a female director, writer, and it's, you know, the focus is on the relationships. It's not on the, you know, the, the gump, which yeah. I think I would find less interesting. Um, I don't, I don't know. Is that lazy gender stereotyping or is there something in that? What do you think? Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I don't know. I think certainly what I can observe is that, you know, obviously there's always been female science fiction around and fantastic stuff at that. You know, I loved Ursula Le Guin and Octavia Butler growing up. But I think the active openness and encouragement in publishing of female science fiction over the past decade has led to some amazing books which have really expanded my idea of what science fiction can be and frankly like increased my enjoyment as well I rarely ventured into a lot of the kind of space opera or really hard science fiction stuff which by the way there's still amazing stuff of that written by women as well um you know Becky Chambers is not shy of uh you know really really understanding outside work but you know things like so at the moment I'm finally getting around to reading last year's Arthur C. Clarke award winner The Animals in That Country by Laura Jean McKay Australian book I'll try not to give too much away but essentially about something called zoo flu which means that humans and animals can, uh, can communicate with each other it's fabulous and you have no idea how two flu works you know there's not some kind of detailed biological discussion about how this kind of opens a portal between between human and animals and the protagonist is a fabulous kind of drunken grandmother who's who's a mess who's like a romantic mess who has irritated you know most of the people in her family who is utterly dysfunctional and utterly wonderful and this book is a love story between her and her dingo between her and her granddaughter and yeah it is it is not like any science fiction I've really read before so you know there are books like that I think really I guess there's more something for everyone, which I'm loving. Also, what I'd love to see more of, um, and this is probably just partly my ignorance and not seeking it out, is more non-binary science fiction. Because won't that help us add some more perspective into a discussion of, you know, oh, this is male gender and this is female gender. Mm. What about all these shades of grey? What about, you know, people from kind of all over the non-binary and, and gender fluid spectrum? putting their perspective on science fiction and seeing what comes out. So any recommendation anyone has, you know, be, be it um, self-published or traditionally published, uh, please, I don't know, hit me up on Twitter or something like that. Yeah, that's great. Um, I suppose um, just carrying on from that as well and the potentially gendered but also ungendered uh, way in which fiction works um I suppose the, the conversation around because you mentioned yourself sort of feeling self-conscious initially uh, when you were asked to write this short story because your background was not in STEM subjects but rather mm -hmm. you've done an English literature degree and then some acting and actually your job is around writing and I kind of want to bring up STEM subjects <laughs> because mm -hmm. I feel like it's something that gets bandied around a lot the kind of like STEM 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 women yeah. in STEM the importance of STEM, the importance of STEM in our future. And I feel like you're based in the UK um, and, and I'm based in the UK at the moment. And um, I feel like in the UK, particularly the UK government has this sort of like, uh, like this salivation almost over STEM and STEM subjects in schools that 
can at times feel a bit depressing to artists. I'm thinking specifically of they ran that campaign about people finding new jobs a while ago and there was the quite ill-judged photo of a ballet dancer mm. and the kind of saying that Fatima's next job might be in STEM and oh, people reacting kind of being like, why should it be? She already is expert in something else. It doesn't have to be STEM to be worthwhile. But I suppose the way in which science and the humanities and arts are pitted against each other in a really unhelpful way. Do you have any feelings on that yourself? Yeah, I think, you know, it's so hard, isn't it? Because I remember I was absolutely passionate about chemistry when I was younger and geology. I, I, I found it incredible. And, you know, I wonder if partly, especially in the UK, the education system is a bit problematic in terms of specialising and narrowing down your subject so early kind of when you get to A-levels as compared to something like a baccalaureate, you know, I don't know. But then, I don't know, you know, when I was that age, I think it felt quite nice also having done everything at school to kind of pinpoint my identity a little bit more. And I think we do it to ourselves as well. We all like to find a pigeonhole in some ways, especially when you're young and say, this is me, you know, oh, here's my tribe. I'm going to cling to it. Interestingly, as I get older, I find myself becoming more mm. multiplicitous and not worrying about you know the different things I are I am and the different interests I have so I think you know it is natural in some ways I think absolutely key is connections between the disciplines and uh, a while ago actually I wrote a leader for a magazine called Offscreen which is all about the human side of technology about encouraging techies to read more fiction I think it was back when um, Bill Gates was kind of publishing his reading list and it went on and on. And, you know, the vast majority of books were nonfiction and very, very occasionally had put one sci-fi novel in there. And so, you know, sometimes science fiction is allowed to be an acceptable sort of reading for someone who's, you know, work, working um, very determinedly in, in, in kind of science or tech. But, you know, actually historical fiction has, a, you know, Hilary Mantel has a hell of a lot of things to learn people who are you know, people who are working in politics or people who are designing technology, um, you know, as do poets, as, as does all types of fiction. So I think, you know, partly, I don't know how that would work, but, you know, in a course in university, you know, mixing modules a bit more and ensuring that, you know, scientists have to take a module in like, you know, 17th century drama or whatever it might be to help cross-polarize. I think expertise is essential and look, you need to knuckle down and spend dedicated time in a lab or, you know, with whatever you need to become an expert in a, in a scientific profession. Absolutely the same if you're a ballerina. So, you know, I, I think it, it's totally fine to have a deep channel. But I think finding playful ways to develop cross currents is so, so important because mm -hmm. it's it's humanity you know it, it, it's about bringing a sense of I guess um curiosity and fresh thinking and rigor to kind of our artistic and cultural professions but then also bringing a sense of you know interiority and lived human experience um and different perspectives to science as well mm. yeah absolutely I think just hearing you talk about it then I was thinking when you said it's the education system that's problematic, you're saying, well, of course, because actually a big part of this is space to fail. And if your education system is not actually around learning, but it's about 
be you know getting the best grades you possibly can in whatever it is that you're doing mm. um because it's better for the school and it's better you know and it's ultimately better for the individual and that doesn't leave a hell of a lot of space for kind of I'm going to take this subject and I'm not going to be the best at it but mm. it might be interesting and it might broaden my view in some way that isn't just getting an A or an A star or whatever yeah, and, and and value, I guess, the importance of various jobs as the ballerina mm. kind of techie example shows. You know, um, I'm, I'm friends with an amazing Iraqi um, film writer and, and director and producer called Maysoon Pachachi. And she has recently, um, she developed a film with a bunch of um, actors and, and performers in Baghdad. And she was saying, it's only when you work in situations like that, when you understand that absolute essential, crucial role that art and storytelling has to play in human culture and human narrative and human mental health. And, you know, she's like, it's not a luxury. It's something that people need desperately to live full lives and to make sense of the world just as science makes sense of the world so I think these false polarities between where value lies is about you know we are in the throes of late capitalism and we're kind of realizing that being being a co-production machine isn't necessarily the most valuable or sustainable thing either so I think rethinking mm. what and how we value work um, is going to have to be crucial because we're always going to educate towards what we value. Mm. I'd love us to talk a tiny bit about scientific. So because it was a really interesting one, this one, because there was sort of, it felt to us when we sort of thought about the conversation to have with the special guest, it felt like there were lots of different themes, you know, quite meaty stuff to sort of talk about. And felt like we could have, you know, gone into sort of talking about the curation or museums and sort of research and the violence of appropriation of art or, you know, objects and species. And the other one was uh, pornography in the body and eroticism. And then the third one that felt quite important to Fernanda also was science fiction as a genre. So that's why we ended up mm. wanting to talk to you. Um, but I was really interested in sort of, yeah, what your associations were when you read the play and what it, did it make you think of? Or mm. Well, it's a, it's a perfect question because I think it's, so, it, it, I mean, it's absolutely my cup of tea and it's such a rich, condensed little gem of a piece that I had associations firing all over the place from such a wide variety of places so you know I, I guess one of the first was Frankenstein because you've got a snowy setting an archipelago a lone explorer and a monster um so you know that in itself was awesome because of course that's a a one of the first science fiction books and it's written by a woman so you know a very a very pertinent echo Interestingly, you say about cultural appropriation, actually, this half term, which uh, as we're recording this was, was a, a few weeks ago, uh, we went to Athens, my husband's uh, Greek and from Athens, and we went to the Acropolis. And so this imagery of a statue-like giant thing that's kind of tumbled was, was very evocative. And I think that's one thing that science fiction does amazingly well, is it's not... It, I mean, it's not really about the future or about the past. It's about the present. But it bring, when it brings future and past together in that, uh, yeah, very colossal way, I, th I think that was very effective. And actually reminded me of Susanna Clarke's Piranesi, yes. her recent book, which, again, I love these books, which managed to kind of sneak through their science fiction, but they kind of managed to 
trick the media or you know whoever it is that um that they're just kind of literary fiction but you know it's it's a brilliant science fiction book really and the imagery there of kind of huge statues which you know you kind of feel like might fall on top of you at any moment was fantastic on a, on a slightly different angle it really reminded me as, as she started to essentially not get swallowed that's an interesting distinction not get swallowed by this creature but kind of swallow herself <laughs> make herself be swallowed um it really reminded me of inner space that really cheesy 1980s film with dennis quaid and meg ryan does anyone remember that this Can't was me this was no. my childhood <laughs> this is why i had no friends i was watching shit like that um but it's where a, a test pilot goes into the human body that I mean I haven't watched it for years the effects now in retrospect must be hideous but you know it's like he drives his little his little craft like through the bloodstream <laughs> it was probably awful my memory of it is of something truly wondrous but I guess also that that combination of the kind of small hard metallic object and then this vast fleshy empire which is which is evoked so well in this play I mean that visceral physicality of going into a body is revolting and brilliant a little some little sparks there you know Jonah and the whale obvious one always good if you've got some biblical stuff firing up um earthlings by Sayaka Murata that is a book that has haunted me ever since I read it totally with the author who wrote Convenience Store Woman that mm. um that, that was yeah. very well known um and that's got a lot of cannibalism in it so so for some reason that kind of objectification of the human body and seeing it as something where you're kind of tearing off chunks and and swallowing things swallowed uh, sprung out at me um, what else? You know, Titus Andronicus, tongue being ripped out. I always think, you know, a bit of Shakespeare resonance is valuable. What I really loved as well was the little contrast. You know, it's funny. It's really funny. There's that there's that moment when, um, where is it? You know, she has little asides, which are really funny. You know, she's going deeper and deeper and, you know, she kind of has her cup of tea. Uh, I love I love moments like that, moments that feel real. Um, moments that just feel human and you know she's got her equipment and and you know she's kind of trying to do stuff and it doesn't really work and she's trying to convince herself that she's being really scientific about this when actually obviously she's like totally losing her shit in this wild kind of uh kind of experience um so you know it's funny and it's fresh and there are these little details and I think that that mixture of like violence and sex and, and, and science and uh, objectiveness, it, 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 it creates a very strange feeling. And I think that's something that um, plays do incredibly well, just like fiction, that they can kind of evoke feelings that we don't have words for, um, but that we, we recognize and understand on a deep level, which comes from the collision of many things. Mm. Well, I was just thinking when you were giving, because like you say there's there's so many uh allusions in the in the piece to a kind to, to just a an enormous history of work from kind of greek tragedy shakespeare so you know it's it's all there um and i think it is i mean i, lo I love scientific i think it's just such a rich weird brilliant mm. piece. 
one thing I thought when you when you were sort of tying all those things together, because um, I guess I guess one thing I'm sort of grappling with in this episode, <laughs> quite quite openly and quite clunkily, is um, <laughs> my own um, kind of relationship to the you know in inverted comments of sci-fi and kind of feeling like it's just never been something as a as, as something that I've I've always felt sort of oddly spiky towards it but mm. actually when you were listing those things and being like it's it's actually I, I've never thought I'm particularly into sci-fi or even into fantasy but I like magic and mm. some, of this, some of this is actually sort of if you take the the genre and the words away it's 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 about kind of just stretching the imagination and saying what if that's what it is just take away the idea of robots and aliens Mm. and kind of you know geeky maps that might be your thing but if it but if it's not that doesn't matter either like um like I think just a slight extension of the world that you're in that I can really get on board with yeah and I think I think also you know science fiction really is about the present for me so so um recently I guest edited a whole issue on the bookseller about the climate crisis of the bookseller sorry about the climate crisis and sustainability and one of the people who wrote a piece for us was Simon Ings who is a science fiction writer and journalist and he about climate fiction in particular and he wrote this brilliant piece which is all about you know with climate fiction you know a lot of people kind of look to it and say oh what's it predicting you know what what are we what are we going to see can it tell us how to protect ourselves or what to do how to avoid things or how to you know build I don't know build a bunker um and, and he, he had this incredible line where he said, you know, that, that science fiction books are symptoms of our moment, not shapers of it. Mm. And what he was really saying is, you know, leave that to scientists, quite frankly. You know, what science fiction does, it's, it's good, like all fiction, of describing experience, describing lived moment. That Just like we were talking about that intangible feeling that scientific, the play kind of evokes inside you it's brilliant at um evoking almost the undescribable like what it feels like to be in a pandemic or what it feels like to to be you know surrounded by strange technology or to be in a world where you know there are there are like you know hyper sophisticated robots or whatever um and 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 for me actually what the best science fiction does is defamiliarize the present. So, so that book by Laura Jane McKay that I mentioned, The Animals in That Country, that for me is just like, I cannot, I'm finding it very hard to function because I can't look at animals in the same way as I normally would. And you know, throwing out all kinds of things, which you know, I knew already about the meat industry and the dairy industry and our relationship with with animals but like in a way that makes it go so much deeper um there's another book i read recently by nk jemison a kind of hugo award-winning um author in the states called the city we became and it's all about new york and the way there are these people who are kind of avatars of the different boroughs of new york they're almost embodiments of the boroughs of new york and they kind of um, have to fight off this kind of invasion from a parallel universe. It, it makes it sound more, mm. it's actually very accessible. It reads very much like a kind of urban 
urban sci-fi and fantasy that you could start by reading if you're someone who's not at all into that genre but you love cities and you love you know kind of thrilling adventure novels um that are are deeply urban and fun and it then it kind of sneaks it in and again as I walk through you know London which I love so much as a city now you can't help but see it in a different way because of the way she describes um New York and the way that the parts of the city come together and it's like its own living breathing entity that's singing and that's trying to be birthed as its own discrete organism um so you know that that is the kind of science fiction that uh, I mean all science fi- good science fiction does that it doesn't matter what it's about but what it does is make our living now Mm-hmm. kind of feel more wondrous and more full of possibility it doesn't determine those possibilities it just kind of awakens the potential of possibility inside us all I think mm. it's funny listen I mean I just think I think it's just so exciting and I what the thing that I find really funny is that often I think in theatre it's sort of avoided because it's seen as something quite hard to stage mm. I think and the genre is sort of not done very often maybe maybe more in the UK I don't know I'm just trying to think if it's done here in Germany as much but it's just so funny because actually it it, it, it what you're describing is something that actually theatre does do so it just feels oh. like there's sort of a sort of maybe a I don't know that theatre thinks it's something that it doesn't have to be it's got yeah. a reputation it, that's it it's got a reputation yeah. <laughs> for something that it has to be robots mm. or set in you know sort of sort of set in something that is hard to achieve somehow yeah I don't know what mm. would what would excite you to see on stage Oh, well, I, you know, as you say, science fiction, I was racking my brains as I was reading this thinking, you know, so, you know, I used to act, I've always been a massive fan of theatre, I used to write about, write on the Guardian Theatre blog, and I'm like, what have I seen science fiction on? I mean, maybe there's some, depends, again, it kind of depends what you class as science fiction. Um, I loved recently so different um was Neddy Okorafor wrote a book called Noor which is all about about a kind of a future Africa well the whole world has kind of been through you know what we're going through climate crisis and all kinds of things and the heroine is kind of largely bionic um she was born with various disabilities and then chose to have different parts parts implanted including neural implants so she's kind of part machine part human ostracized by a lot of lot of people in her society but um basically gets into a fight and kills a bunch of guys and goes on the run and meets up with a herdsman who's been accused of being a terrorist and they go out into the desert towards this red eye which is this great sandstorm in the middle of the desert where a lot of other kind of outcasts have have created a little kind of city in a bubble now it sounds like this it sounds like something that would be totally impossible to stay you know like really really top end imaginative science fiction in 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 terms of technology and the tropes there's all these huge wind farms and there's a kind of you know I felt thinly disguised kind of Amazon corporation who's kind of in control of everything but actually it's quite a chamber piece because the action itself often happens just with um, these two characters and their developing relationship and you know this this kind of small community in the desert Um, and I just think that could be done so beautifully because actually the staging could be 
really quite simple. A lot of stuff could be done through lighting, could be done through illusion, through a simple shape or a simple image. But actually then it really digs down into so many fascinating things about identity and about belonging and about, you know, who we turn into villains and who we lionize and independence. Yeah. You know, and so I just think that could be a lovely piece that wouldn't require, you know, lots of clunky CGI. And because, like, you know, we've got amazing puppets. Great. You know, the National Theatre could probably do some fantastic stuff with, with, you know, the animals in that country, for example, you know, get some brilliant puppets, you know, speaking their language in clever ways. you know Philip Pullman and you know they could do something fab but also I'd be really interested in theatres of all budgets being able to take these really fantastic issues at the heart of sci-fi and make them real and I just think that's an example of a book where often it's very very claustrophobic because Mm -hmm. weirdly I think the desert because because they have to wear these 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 Mm -hmm. kind of silicon masks to protect themselves from the crazy sandstorm um it can feel very claustrophobic and like you're in one tiny space that is just separate from this huge whistling wind outside um so I think it could be um it could be staged very effectively in a non-cliched way yeah listeners did you get that (laughs) (laughs) yes producers film producers yeah yeah for sure it sort of sounds yeah like a like a chamber piece um, answer to, to Dune or something in a way. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That has huge, huge implications and a huge world that you kind of glimpse outside of it, but the action is intimate. Small. Yeah. Well, we very sadly may have to, to wrap up shortly because um, we would love to talk forever and ever. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, but before um, we go, do you have any women in the arts or otherwise who inspire you at the moment? Oh, gosh, that's a cruel question. I mean, so many. You mentioned um, Kit Duvall, who I co-founded Big Book Weekend with. She is a force for light and goodness in the world. And in fact, her um, her memoirs coming out this year that she is a tireless supporter, patron and campaigner for access mm. to publishing and the arts across race, class, age gender and you know does it with with such humor um and and warmth and you know she's frankly just a brilliant writer as well as a brilliant person so I think she's an example of um definitely you know what I'd like to do when I grow up um Michaela Cole I think is fabulous um brilliant actress brilliant writer Her, her little personal manifesto misfits um, I'd encourage everyone to go out and buy that. It is so moving and beautiful and awful and great. And I just think, you know, if you're interested in self-expression and the industry of the arts as well, it's a must read. Lucy Preble. I mean, I've just, you know, I've finished the most recent series of Succession, which is... I mean, I mean, the writing, you just, I, I just want to rewind every episode and take it through, like, you know, slow it down so I can catch all the brilliance. I mean, from Enron to that, you know, even Secret Diary of the Call Girl, of a Call Girl I remember I used to love, um, you know, just what, what, you know, th- these kind of super talented women who are just kind of carving, carving their own space and doing their own thing and combining 
really serious, important stuff with just fun, with brilliant, fun, immersive artistic um, output. I think, uh, yeah, they are shining lights for us all. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. That is a wonderful, wonderful trio. I think you mentioned. There. Um, <laughs> if and if they would like to, to um, have dinner, they can come to my small flat in Shoreditch while my children are asleep, and I will cook them really bad pasta. Get the out. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so so much for joining us, Molly. This has been a joy. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a, a real pleasure. Scientific was written by Fernanda Rocha, directed by Sandra Teresa Buch, and performed by Zara Bober. Sound design was by Julian Starr. Our special guest was Molly Flatt, and our episode hosts were Lily McLeish and Josephine Start. The episode editor was Lily McLeish. Fizzy Sherbet is produced by Steph Weller for Playwell Productions and Amina Hamid Productions. This episode is only possible thanks to the kind support of the National Lottery through Arts Council England and the Sainsbury Foundation. Thanks also to our anonymous supporters... You know who you are. You can find out more about Fizzy Sherbet on fizzysherbetplays.com and if you enjoyed this episode, please like, follow, subscribe and review.